0: listening to Down in Bloomington, a conversational podcast about the musical history of Bloomington, Indiana. My guest for this episode is PJ Christie. I've known PJ Christie since the late 80s. We were teenagers hanging out in Broad Ripple. PJ was the bass player for a band called The Blacklisted. PJ was a member of the Jarens. The Jarens eventually evolved into a band called Sardina. After Sardina split up, PJ has gone on to play with so many bands with important ties to Bloomington, Indiana. He sits down with me today to tell me the story of his musical evolution to talk about the bands that he's played with and the projects that he currently works on. This was a really fun conversation and I really enjoyed hearing PJ's recollections of Bloomington's music scene. I hope you enjoy my conversation with PJ Christie. But before we get into it, here's a live version of the song Antelopes.
1: Hey, PJ, how are you? Good, how are you?
0: Good. Um, thank you for making time to do this. This is awesome. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Damn. This is- Dude, uh, it's been so long. I know, and this is exciting. Are you in Texas? Where are you? Yeah, I'm in Austin. I love it. here. I love it here. We've been here for almost 15 years. It might be, uh, wow, probably close to 15 or 20 years since the last time I saw you in person, face to face. I don't think
1: I, it would have been, I mean, the last time we really hung out was when you were in monkey fish.
0: Yeah. I think we went
1: into each other at a Thai restaurant in broader Yeah. We bumped into each other a little bit. But yeah. The last time, I mean, I mean the, the last time we got to talk about music and really like connect, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Which, which is like a good, uh, segue into like uh you know my earliest recollections of you whereas the bass player in blacklist that's right that's right uh, yeah and um we were on the label together yeah that's right we were we uh yeah. we, we were label mates uh, um yeah pretty cool um yeah. but you were a big part of that um broader music scene um if i remember you you kind of like uh had a lot of musical projects going on um in broad ripple
1: yeah well early broad ripple or early in my career in Broad Ripple, like 88 89 90. Mm-hmm. um there was a good thriving punk rock scene mm-hmm. and uh you know in the blacklist, was part of it and sort of toxic reasons and zero boys were the head of it yeah and, uh, you know, and then everybody else was trying to be as cool as they were really um do, do i, remember- I remember- we had our own, our own young thing. We played at the Arlington and yeah. Uh, yeah, all kinds of all kinds of
0: all ages places. Do I remember this correctly? Going to shows at maybe your parents' house? Yeah. Was that right? Like? Well, we just
1: needed gigs. Right. I mean, but it was on a know, golf course, right? Or that's was it? Right. The golf course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was a couple of big shows there. My mom wanted it. My mom, well, my grandparents built the golf course. Mm-hmm. And then my mom wanted to, uh, have a, um, have like a, uh, employee, uh, employee party. You know, there was like 15 people that were there. And so she offered to pay the bands and we had the blacklisted. We had acid green. We had Big Ted. I don't remember. We probably had you guys. I, no, it, did we you- didn't play,
0: but I, I remember like just how, um, the juxtaposition of the golf course and all the punk rock kids yeah. and and acid green and blacklisted yeah, was, <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah yeah well you know one of the one of the big concerts before that i mean that one was not a big concert but there was a really good one called freakstock yep. which was out in uh plainfield and that's why i first saw transgression and modern vending um Yeah, I mean, there was just so many great bands coming out of Indianapolis. And then there was like an older group that was really like right to left and and Mike's House and those guys, which were also, you know, really good. And, you know, they were informed by punk, but nobody would consider what Polgar Boatman was really doing punk rock. But all of my friends love the Boatman. I love the Boatman. They're one of my favorite all-time bands
0: right do you remember i mean and i i still have a a vinyl copy of it but uh black brutal frisbee and uh
1: yeah uh, Yeah, that was
0: we we like traded that back and forth i had like dubs of it i even like when i would be like away working at summer camp i would like make copies of that for people and like you know (laughs) make sure it like ended up all over the country if i could So Mm -hmm. they could hear jot, and they could hear uh, sloppy seconds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You moved to to Bloomington in the 90s, right? Well, Well, I
1: moved to Bloomington in 91. So I had uh, taken a year off after high school. I graduated Lawrence North in 89. Go Wildcats. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I took a year off. Just to play music, and uh, family. My family supported me doing that. That's when I moved out to the golf course and kind of got into the family business. Yeah. And uh, through, you know, some through some really great things and some really hard things, as, as these kinds of moves are, are uh, sometimes go. Uh, my girlfriend Marjorie and I, we moved down to Bloomington in '91, and that's when I started at IU. Yeah. I remember running into you
0: one time walking home from class, and mm-hmm. you. Living in like the Green Acres neighborhood,
1: yeah, that's right. Yeah, West Campus. Uh Yeah, yep. Yeah. uh, yeah. So the Jerrins would have been. I was living in Indianapolis, and in the in the timeline, uh, a lot of really cool stuff started to happen in Indianapolis. And Jim Kuchkowski, I think it's where I met, really got to know Jim was at at, uh, Brand X. and so Brand X was going on downtown. It was like a, like a performance space in a warehouse kind of thing. Sunday and, Yeah, it's Sunday nights. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so I would go down there. And uh, uh, so the Blacklisted was like, I guess that would have been around, wait, Rusty Cow yeah. era. Yeah. Um, and so Blacklisted was winding down. And, uh, I, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. But um, I was without a band and, you know, didn't. I mean, I had I didn't know really how to be in bands, and I didn't know how to leave a band, so the blacklist was kind of fading away, and I started doing the MC at Brand X, and that's when I saw the Jarens. So the Jarens were already up and running as an acoustic trio when I met them, mm-hmm. and then I, I joined up and convinced them to be a rock band, and that's that that was that was in like '90 probably, yeah. Um, and then the Jerins were kind of back and forth between Bloomington and Indianapolis over the next I don't know, three years. Um, and uh, but the, all my first shows in Bloomington were with the Jerrins, uh, I, or or uh, the Wild Corn Dogs with the impugnality. <laughs> well, do you remember? So one time, Monkeyfish
0: and Blacklisted played a show at Varsity Villas in Bloomington. Um, yes, we did. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think I think we opened for you, and uh-huh. um, it was it was weird because it was like a bunch of bros. And like uh, yeah. and two
1: bands that didn't weren't really birds uh-huh. at all. Yeah, it was uh... Yeah. Well Jack Hirsch always had a little bit of trouble fitting in with the with a rowdy audience, it seemed to me. I, I loved I love Jack's drumming though. Yeah. but um, uh, but yeah, I I I wanna say now I sometimes get my stories mixed up, but I wanna say that was a New Year's Eve show. Huh and uh, because we did a new, uh, Blacklisted did a New Year's Eve show. And I know Jim was there when, uh, we counted down or we were supposed to count down until midnight and everybody was too fucked up. And so it was like 20 minutes after midnight and we realized, I know mean, nobody had their phones out, you know? Right. And so we, we did the countdown like 20 minutes late. <laughs> I, it, it, I know that was at the Varsity
0: Villas. I, know um, was a- I don't know if it was that show or not. I had a tendency back then not to be very, um, conscious um oh it's just a blur so
1: so many of it the yeah. the, the stories they become their own their th- their own thing you know you remember what you can and you share them with somebody who kind of half remembers it too and then the the, the memories really take a life of their own yeah they do
0: so so eventually were the jarens pretty much in a bloomington band or were they solely uh were they back and forth between indianapolis
1: and and uh, so, so in the way that the Jarens went, uh, it was uh, uh, the great John Sealingwalker Walker was the drummer. And he he actually moved down a couple months before I did.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he lived in a house with um, uh, uh, Frida's brother. And uh, they had a baby. And that was John moved down first, really. Ultimately, John did. And then I moved down. And then Paul Couchy, the uh, guitar player, moved down. And Kent, uh, that was the lead guitar, he went to Art Institute. And so we would go, that's how we got started going up to Chicago for gigs. Um, and then uh, Michelle kind of split between Indianapolis and Bloomington, kind of depending on what was going on in her life. Uh, she lived there on Jefferson with us for for a good long time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, over the over the, you know, that sort of early 90s, Michelle and I were back and forth a lot between India and Bloomington, so it's it it, it it's a gray area there. Yeah, uh, but uh, we were we were pretty well established in Indianapolis when we moved down there. We had already played the Vogue, we had already played the Patio, um, but uh, our first gig at the Bluebird was opening for the Blake Babies, and we were we were super excited about that show because oh, yeah. uh, the Blake Babies were actually somebody, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was our that was our first gig, and we played gigs opening for uh, uh, Vulgar Boatman and Arson Garden there in at the at, at, in Bloomington that first year, and just trying to trying to uh, forge sound and get heard. We had made a uh, cassette tape, from Paul Mayhern, that uh, opened up a lot of doors for us, and uh, that, that was the release that we had. So we kind of worked out in Bloomington and sold it at TDs and played right. at the Collins Cheshire Cafe and wherever we could. What was the name of your release? The cassette.
0: It's called Our Son. Okay, and that's there's a good write up. I don't know. Uh, I was I was looking through some of the stuff on the uh, internet and uh, somebody writes a pretty cool story about uh, Our Son and about oh, yeah? the transition. From Jaren's to Sardina, which we'll we'll hopefully get into in this conversation, but that core that core uh, of of the Jaren's was yourself, Michelle Marcheseau, and uh, was it John Sealingwalker?
1: and uh, Paul, Paul Couchy was the acoustic guitar player, and he was from Broad Ripple, yeah. and uh, Kent Jolly was the uh, was the lead guitar player, and he was from like Nora area in Indianapolis. Uh, and then after our son came out, we, uh, we, we changed drummers. We changed from John Sealing Walker to Lon Paul, Elridge, and of course he was in, he was in, you know, all those great bands in Indianapolis too, Tin Lounge and, and, Din and, and, uh, uh, so when, when we started playing with Lon Paul, the sound for the Jarens began to just expand quite a bit. Um from like acoustic music to, you know, well, it just brought in a lot more influences. And grunge was big, getting so big. I mean, no band wasn't touched by like just the the, the desire to get louder. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were we were all really into the Pixies and we wanted to get louder. And other than having an acoustic guitar player in the band, there really wasn't anything to stop us. And so that's, that. when you talk about that transition from the Jaren's with what people think of like the quiet acoustic Jaren's to becoming, a, uh, you know, more of a, of a, of a wild band, a lot of that was Lon Paul, and a lot of it was moving from an acoustic guitar player to, to one electric guitar player. It yeah. uh, gave us a leaner sound, and, and, uh, and we were just going nuts. I mean, it, with the creativity, it was a lot of fun. When, either in the
0: Jarens or Sardina, um, you all wrote an incredible volume of really good songs. Were you writing together, or did somebody come with a, a, a completely written
1: song that then the the band fleshed out? Both. Uh, there were a lot of songs that came out of jams. You know, we were doing a lot of jamming, um, which is how the blacklisted had always come up with material too. You know, there there uh, usually someone would have a riff and you jam it out, and then before you know it, you'd have a song. Uh, I would say that. That in Sardina, a lot of the, in terms of volume, a lot of the music was like spontaneously jammed. But in terms of what people have heard through the records, you know, in, in post years, uh, it's probably half and half, I would say, honestly, uh, where people would bring in a finished song. I didn't bring in a lot of finished songs. Uh, Michelle was more likely to, Juan Paul was more likely to, Marty was more likely to. Usually I was uh, uh, just kind of driving driving other people's ideas as much as I could. It's a great thing for a bass player, do. <laughs> you know? It's my favorite thing about being a bass player is
0: that yeah. um, I don't have to uh, come up with a lot of ideas, but I
1: can come up with a lot of creative ways to present those ideas. You know? And uh, when when you were, like, in the scene, were you ever faced with uh, the ferocity yeah. of Lon Paul's drums, like, to just oh. really experience the, the yeah. creativity of his drums? It was so like it made it, it made the it job so easy because we could just say okay we're gonna just switch from here into we don't know, and it would be automatically awesome just because the drums were always right there. Right. Um, and 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 Michelle and I had such a uh, trust and chemistry because we had been jamming already for a long time. Uh, you know, for her to be able to like improvise lyrics the way that she was, I mean, when when a band can do that, it's like it just Every time you play, it feels like a new album, you know, and that's, that's largely how I think of Sardina.
0: Yeah. And it's, um, what, when I think about that, I think about some of the times that I saw you all play in Bloomington. And, and I think probably I was catching kind of the, a lot of the transition between Jaren's to Sardina. Um, Mm -hmm. and I can't remember which band I (laughs) suck, right? But but I do remember that kind of ferocity of Lon Paul's drumming. And I remember kind of thinking about the, kind of the engines that drive a band and Mm -hmm. thinking about kind of how that dynamic expressed itself when you guys played live. I also remember thinking about that transition from kind of the more acoustic sound to the more electric sound. And I always thought it was really impressive the way, uh, the way that Michelle's voice um, made that transition as well. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. That's say more about that. That's interesting perspective. Well, I just, I really remember, like, seeing a noticeable shift in the sound.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Thinking about how versatile she was, or she, probably is as as a singer and how that um kind of bridged that transition between the softer yeah. acoustic stuff to this louder more driven stuff and it was pretty incredible to see it's
1: truly incomparable you know the, the thing with michelle and, and i don't think i mean i'm just gonna give my props to her because i love her so much you know but but she, she was kind of a, a, a student of the theater in a way her mom used to work at uh beef and boards in indianapolis booking all the acts and so she had already seen like bb King five times and the best little whorehouse in texas and you know beef and boards in indianapolis it was a weird little theater i it I, they, they would have all kinds of stuff through there and she had just a just a for being a you know uh, mostly punk kid in the new wave when i met her she had a, a lot of depth in terms of the music that she'd experienced and she could sing blues she could sing jazz she could sing hardcore rock and roll she could you know sing a ballad and yeah. uh but what impressed me there at brand x you know was the way that she could be in a room with stone floors and big walls and a big ceiling totally fill that space with the achingly beautiful melody and uh yeah and and to see to to see that and then to see her like on stage when we opened up for live which was probably one of the bigger stages that we've been on to just see her again fill the room with personality and, and vocal it's it's just a she she really she's incomparable but that's the word that i would use for michelle's vocals i, I think that's
0: well said i really do um mm-hmm. i want to talk about kind of some of the places and spaces that you played in bloomington um being as this is kind of a podcast about yeah, it, about yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, maybe you could tell me a little bit about um some of your memories of playing in bloomington and some of the experiences that you had there
1: yeah well uh i've, I've so much enjoyed listening to the other people talk you know i i want to just piggyback on her what a what a fucking great thing Ur-Night was, yeah. you know? I uh, That was, I mean, I brought, I, I put I put a few like really weird things on stage at Ur-Night and they always went over, they always went over well. Um, uh, 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 of my, one venue that I really enjoyed a lot that I don't think people talk about very much was uh, Courtney Kaiser booked... Um, and then I can't remember the name of it. It was Rhinos at one point, and then it turned into a bar, and it was right on the square, and I think they had a downstairs lounge. So I think you're talking about
0: the Root Cellar? house or something. Root Cellar, was that it? I don't... Was it right on the corner? Like, the comedy attic is there now. That's right, that's right. What yeah. was downstairs there? The bishop is below that, but there was a basement. There was like the Um, Wild Beat, I think, was the name of the place. And then,
1: yeah, I remember the Wild Beat. It it wasn't wasn't the Root Cellar, maybe it was the Cellar Lounge. Cellar Lounge, maybe, yeah. But Courtney booked that space. And and that was a really good sounding room, I think, for for everything that I wanted to do. Uh, uh, Certainly every club has its unique sounds. But I thought that was the one where... I felt like when I got up on stage there, I was really going to be able to hear everything. <laughs> you can say that about Second Story. Second Story, I mean, I loved it, but it had the mirrors up, and, and yep. then it had that whole big blank section to the to the right where you'd lose all that sound. Yeah, you it could was lose kind all of, them. of it was kind of difficult as a performer at Second Story to find that spot on the stage where you felt like you could really like feel everything. And with Sardina, I mean, I definitely felt like I needed to feel everything, you know. Hey. Um, and uh, but Second Story had a really great stage, and I love the stage at the Bluebird. The it actually had a back like a green room, which yeah. a lot of the clubs didn't really have. And Dwayne was always doing the sound over there. It was always he was always really good. I remember a lot of the sound guys too. You know, Dwayne yeah. and Jake over at uh, Second Story probably probably did sound with those guys more than anybody. Yeah. Uh, I saw Vic Chestnut at the fucking uh, Peanut Barrel, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> that was a life-changing show, seeing Vic Chestnut at the
0: Peanut Barrel. Sure. The Peanut Barrel hasn't been around for a long, long time, but I still have mm-hmm. memories of, like, just that whole environment in there mm-hmm. was so, like, uh, unlike any, you know, it was it was dingy, it was, it was
1: kind of, at least my memories, was it was kind of crusty and... And, uh... Yeah, oh, I was totally diving. Yeah, it was like, it was like me and Paul from the Jarens and like three bikers and Vic Chestnut on stage with the drummer and bass player playing the quietest music you could. It was, but it was of course, you know, really like changing and soul affirming to see a songwriter, you know, him with faced with his physical challenges, yeah. uh, just making like beautiful music. Um, the all ages stuff though, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about with Indy, uh, because I had always really done a lot of like renegade shows growing up in Indianapolis for punk rock. It seemed like the first couple of years I was in Bloomington when I wasn't 21 yet, there was a, a lot of really cool all ages stuff going on and there were basement parties all around. Uh, Second Fest had had huge, uh, you know, legendary basement parties, not huge. Some, I mean, some of them were big. Uh, the one at, uh, uh not, second fest was a big one another one oh mitchell there was there was one on mitchell um then for a while i lived at smith and grant we would have big music parties i lived with the japanese elephants over there and we'd have big music parties where everybody would jam and uh there was just such a like there was a great all-ages thing it, i loved how much music you could make there without it being bar focused without it being you know cigarettes were, were in every bar it was it was just It's too many, too much smoke in in those scenes, but uh, the basement scenes were always really cool. And what Brad Wilhelm did with rhinos is like, you know, if there's a Mount Rushmore or the Bloomington music venues, Brad was a was such a welcome host for for Sardina, you know, and and everything I would do over the years. Uh, What's the status of rhinos now?
0: Is it still it does not exist. Um, no. um there is uh, a venue in Bloomington called uh the Backspace Gallery, which is an art gallery. Um mm-hmm. and the person who uh runs that is a person named Pixie. Mm-hmm. And, um they used to book shows at Rhino's mm-hmm. and uh Pixie is working really hard to create an all-ages space um, in the Backspace Gallery. As a matter of fact, November 15th, um, there's, uh, WFHB is doing a a live, a local live show uh, for Mm -hmm. free admission, um, all ages uh, in the gallery. And- um, at the
1: Backspace Gallery?
0: Yeah, and um, Uh it's it's gonna be, Hopefully, something that continues to happen on a regular basis. And uh, yeah. the there are basement shows that are all ages. There are, but but um, I mean, also being you know almost fifty-five years old, I'm a little bit <laughs> from, the, from the all ages uh, yeah. scene here. Yeah. in, in and I've got a fourteen-year-old son who um, does not have a lot of interest in rock music or uh, all, he's real into like uh like uh 1930s jazz and
1: uh, oh yeah. Uh-huh.
0: So not, uh, yeah yeah he's not looking for uh live uh live shows which is yeah kind of kind of heartbreaking to me but also like you know gotta let him do his thing rhinos doesn't exist i think there's mm-hmm. an opportunity there's a space uh that could be created for that kind of all ages thing to happen mm-hmm. so, you know the I'm gonna sound like an old man right now, but part of it is getting kids away from their phones and their school. Yeah, it is. yeah, it is enough to, uh, you know have them
1: venture out and, and engage. Well, we had uh, we had uh, like I mean we're we're oh, throwbacks. you're fifty five, I'm fifty two. Yeah. And you know if we wanted to, if we wanted to go have fun, there was just a few places. I mean, in Broderpool, it would be the drag, you know, uh, uh, spent a lot of nights on Broadrupal Avenue, yeah, watching the bands through the, the window at the patio. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I'm glad that that Bloomington can do some all ages stuff because it's, it's really important in a town like that. It's really just all about the, the academic experience, but the social experience, yeah. and to, to, you know, to like push everybody who's interested in rock and roll through the bar scene. There's just so much really great, interesting music that can be made outside of a bar scene. You know, I mean, now, like, you don't drink and I don't drink. We've gotten so old that we can't, like, you know, uh, sustain that anymore. Uh, right. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, uh, and I miss Bloomington a lot. I, uh, I was that last there and I visited with Paul and uh, Jennifer mm-hmm. and um, really just beautiful people. I've known Paul forever you know and uh my my uh, grandfather had just died and so paul had some kind kind words for me and it was really cool that's beautiful mm-hmm. that's beautiful hey can we, my market? dad's down that way yeah uh, let me just say my dad's down that way too so i i uh, want to try to get down there again soon he's in uh, lake cordry on the other side of the Houston national forest oh yeah for sure yeah, so I'm down, I'm down that way most of the holidays that's not too far away at all uh-huh. um
0: I wanted to uh talk a little bit about um the the recordings that you did with the jerns and with sardina
2: mm-hmm.
0: a little bit about like uh what that process was like how you how you found yourselves in the studio how you uh went about distributing your recordings that kind of stuff yeah um, yeah it started with the jerns
1: mm-hmm yeah so the jerns we did a. Uh, um we went to gosh, I hope I get I hope I get the details on this right. I, the way I remember, it, we went to September Nights in Indianapolis and worked with somebody. It wasn't Paul. Um, somebody over there we worked with, and then uh, and then we we duped the cassette. We did a self release cassette. And we duped that at uh, um, Amit Cassette Services there on the east side of uh, of Indianapolis. And that guy was super cool. And it was a place you could walk in with a check and then come back five days later and you would have, you know, 500 cassettes or something. So we did. We went through a run of cassettes that way and got a bunch of gigs and got a guy to act as a manager for us, which was cool too. And then we went back and then the, the second project we did with Paul was uh, our son. And we recorded again at September 9th. And I, I'm pretty sure that 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 was the first time I had worked with Jim as an engineer because he was maybe an intern over there at the time. Maybe I got that wrong. But we did that with Paul and again, self-released it on cassette. Um, and uh, it seemed, just seemed to fit with a DIY model that I had always done in, in my punk rock days. You know, we just, yeah. we did cassettes in the blacklisted and then we continued to do it. But the idea that vinyl was this like, the, the when we get to do a vinyl, that's when it's gonna be really cool, you know? And so uh, the Jarens, then we, that was the last one that we did. Was the uh, and then we, well, we did a home recording thing after um, for like super fans. And then when Sardina started, uh, uh, Jim stopher from Din had an eight-track unit at the place that him and Mom Paul shared on the east side of Indy. And so our first demos were there. And then that sounded pretty good, but not great. And so we went with Jim Jim Kuchkowski and Chris Cress up to Mas Giorgini's studio called Sonic Iguana. And I I had a big base cabinet that I used for the blacklist that I didn't need anymore. It was like a big 410, 115 cabinet. And I sold that to finance the demos with Jim at Sonic Iguana. And from there, it was just like, everybody loved the, the results. Uh, you know, we did, we did a single uh, with, um, uh, Evan Finch's group, uh The Love Me Knots had a, a thing called um uh, Favorite Street Records that released our our first single. And then uh and then we just got a lot of attention. You know, the, the, that's when the record companies really started to pay attention. Um with the Sardina demos in the first single. And I kind of like, I mean, James Cohn's was a big influence on the way that I saw things and uh and John Strom too in the way that I saw things, you know. And neither of them recorded their albums in Indiana <laughs> and so I feel like uh with the the awkward to go up to Chicago and record and work with the you know a, a different engineer not you know in Indianapolis there were choices that you made to stay within the community and Bloomington had their own community kind of based on Echo Park and uh and uh so the so when Sardina uh got our first bit of record label attention, it was Ken and he wanted to come up and have us come up to Chicago and record. And we were just blown away at this beautiful studio, Chicago Recording Company. And we worked with this dude, Gus, who had worked with, he was like a house guy at RCA. So he worked with Lou Reed and Elvis Presley. And, you know, like, he was probably the guy who walked out of the Lou Reed session <laughs> They were making too much noise. Gus was that kind of guy, you know? I don't know that that's true, but Gus, Gus was cool. But he was a little older. Yeah. And uh and then uh, we cut, um, I mean, that's really, when. so with the, the first thing, it was Monkey on Mars, Girl from Outer Space, uh, Big Brother, New Child, Big Man, and San Francisco. A lot of people thought San Francisco was the best song. Monkey on Mars was the mo- one that sounded the most like the Jarens, and so that went on the single. Um, and then uh, w- when we recorded with Gus, it was like, that's when we first cut uh, Liberty Horse, we first cut he's on drugs again, um, we cut a version that we didn't use of, uh, travel and tourism that would be on the presence album. And so it went well there with Gus. And so Ken then wanted to, uh, sign a, a record deal with this. And so he kind of got things out of order. Usually you sign the record deal and then you record the album. I think Ken's people wanted to make sure that it was going to be good before they actually committed to putting it out and, uh, we had three weeks up there, you know, and the Chicago Recording Company is a world-class recording studio. We cut right in between uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Wilco. Wow. you know. Yeah, same engineer, you know, same board, same room, probably the same drum kit, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, it was really heady stuff, you know. They had, they had the big uh, reverb plates in the basement with the, uh, it used to be the Playboy building. So it was like a really cool, uh, uh building and uh the reverb plates we kind of just that uh, uh, when we talk about the the sardina like record uh presence which you know i'm not gonna i love it i think it, it really turned out well but it probably has too much reverb on it but dude if you had those big plates sitting in a basement and all you had to do was turn a knob and suddenly like the streets of Chicago come alive through these plates because it's like dance underground, you know? You do you'd have used a lot of it too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and you know, like when you're in the studio, oftentimes like you, you have all these new tricks and toys and you want to use them all. Mm-hmm. You want you want to like take advantage of every feature that this studio is
1: is affording you. So of course you want to like play with yeah. all of it. All of of Paul was a really creative dude and Marty was a really creative dude and we all like had a lot of ideas for putting stuff in and we had the time to just like play. Most albums are made like, you know, there's a gun pointed at your head (laughs) figuratively uh, to uh, get it done as quick as possible and every delay. And, you know, a bass player's just got to be like, just like whatever's going on, it can't be the bass that messes it up, you know, the bass and the drums has to be there. Yeah. and uh uh but after my job was done it was just like like a playland of you know there's pianos and organs and and uh stuff laying around to to pick up and we would just be like making a noise in the control room and someone would say get out there and put it on the mic and let's do it you know it was it was uh, so the so when we made presents i think everybody knew that something big had just happened um like uh Again, hearing your other interviews, I remember playing it for uh, Glenn Higgs and uh, Glenn had this like white look on his face when I played Cockroachle Doo, which and he was like, there's a full second of delay on here. And I said, I know. And he's like, all right, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was the summer him and Johnny kept the fire going in the backyard all, all summer when I went over there and uh, and then uh, you know, but while I was doing that, there was like delays, um, because you record an album like that, and then it's so much time before it comes out, and that that really ended up being the undoing of Sardina, because that's when kind of Marty kind of lost lost interest. Is it as we had like a gap where we weren't really really doing anything interesting. He kind of you know felt like doing something else, and I started playing with I started my own band. Mm-hmm. Uh, my so this, this is my my favorite. Uh, experience and I'll I'll find the video for you but uh, it was a summer of 95 in Bloomington you know how slow things can be in the summer there and Michelle had mono coming off the or she was she was ill with something Um, and uh, so we we canceled the run of Sardina dates which we had a date at Second Story booked and um, so Sardina can't do it they can't find anybody to take over and so I just impromptu started a band uh, with uh, my friends, uh, Dan Fierst and uh, Greg Backus, and then our girlfriends. And we, uh, we got together a, a band to play like one show at Second Story. And then the other band canceled. And so I wrote a musical, and then I brought in like a whole bunch of people to, uh, to act out the parts of this musical. And uh, Eric from Daisy Brain captured it on video. And it's just weird, you know? It's it's just the it's just a weird thing that somehow I pulled off, and it isn't particularly great or anything like that. It's just hilarious that it got done, right? Yeah. That we put it on stage, second story. That that Eric was Eric was such a great chronicler of all those things from the scene, and that's probably my favorite my favorite memory was was when I started my own band for one show. And, uh, you know, stepping out from the bass role and, and being a, the, the leader of a band and then running that, that theater piece at Second Story in the summertime Amazing. to like 15 people. Yeah. Was I was the not
0: best. here summer of 95. I wish I would have seen that.
1: Oh, God. It
0: was, it was fun. Um, I'll find it. The, there's a YouTube of it. Good. Please send it to me. I wanted to um, pick back up the, the recordings that you did uh, in Chicago. Um, so that was kind of the, after that summer of 95 was kind of the,
1: the, the end of Sardina or am I, well, it was the end of Marty's role in Sardina. Okay. Um, so Marty, uh, Marty was really key. I mean, when I talk about that, that Jaron's to Sardina transition, it was really built on Marty's guitar playing that we've made that transition. Yeah. Um, and he's a highly creative guy who wrote some of the, my favorite songs that anyone has ever written. Uh, plus Marty was an old friend of mine. He, he and I went to high school together and he was, he played drums in Bramble Grit. Bramble Grit probably played that, that show you were talking about out in the country, you know, yeah. um, and uh, you know, like not to not be able to play with Marty was kind of a, kind of a bummer. Uh, but, uh, but we also kind of, we were really ambitious. You know, that's that's the other thing I would say is that although I loved Marty, I recognized that he he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to try to be in the biggest band in the country. And we kind of did. Um, so we wanted to move up to Chicago and he just didn't want to. And somewhere in 95 then is when we move up to Chicago and figured we would uh, try to find another guitar player and, uh, you know, work up our new songs and tour and you know try to make another album um so we went through a, a, a like a like a string of guitar players to try to make that pivot and uh i don't know just didn't just didn't execute very well you know yeah. we used uh we, we we auditioned a bunch of people and we auditioned uh chris coopersmith and uh him and tina were playing in uh fabric i think at that point with scott and uh and we really thought it would be cool if uh if chris and tina joined sardina um but they you know they had their reasons i don't know i don't know what to say about it uh you know uh i mean what i remember about it is people had a lot of difficulty with long um i never had a lot of difficulty with him but you know he could really he could be pretty difficult, you know. I certainly saw him attack people for no good reason. Uh although he just never did it with me. Yeah. Uh he attacked my girlfriend, you know, for no good reason. So, you know, he, I saw him do it to people I care about. But um uh I thought that I thought I still think that would have been really cool to to do it with Chris and Tina. And then we tried with this guy, Fred, who was in Philadelphia. He had spent some time in Indy uh, working with Janice Hoyt from uh, Boatman. And uh, in like the uh, pre Mary Jane's, like a very early version of whatever that ended up becoming. Um, uh, And so, but Fred was, Fred had issues, you know, that we couldn't get around drug issues, we couldn't get around mental stability. So we sent him back to Philadelphia and then we tried with uh, Greg Backus. So Greg played in a bunch of Bloomington bands. He was in a band called Shine and Special Machines and uh, a really creative dude. and had traveled with us before as like a roadie and played pretty mean guitar. So we tried with Greg and then, uh, and it got like a good set with Greg and toured and then uh, switched from Greg to uh, Bill Cameron for about three months. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were really on fire with Bill too. But, you know, by then it's like the relationship between me and Michelle and and Paul had kind of like, you know, each time we had to like go through that, you know, it's Marty, then is it Chris? It's not Chris, is it? is it Greg, it can't be Greg, uh, you know, it, going going through that, we're just like, oh, God, just fuck it, you know. And well, uh, Paul got asked to join Mysteries of Life, and so he was like, <laughs> God. Uh back to Indy. And I was just standing up in Chicago, you know, we uh, Sardina had, had uh, a publishing deal, and we had paid rent on a place for a year. And just because Michelle and La Polly wanna live there, I didn't have really anything else to do, so I stayed up in Chicago. And so, uh, but you know, we did, that That was not the end of my Bloomington club experience. I was also in uh, uh, sort of a, an honorary member of Stranded at the drive-in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was, that That I really, uh, Chuck Gonzalez and I became really close friends. He lived uh, in my neighborhood there. When I worked with Eli, and I lived up in uh, Cottage Grove. I became close friends with Chuck. And I joined Lessig's Kid as a bass player. And then, uh, and then we saw Pat Spurgeon. I saw Pat Spurgeon at a gas station. I was like, dude, what's going on? He's like, I'm ready to play. He was in the wombats. And, uh, you know, but of course, Pat is, you know, one of the most incredible drummers. He had been through uh, Steve Kowalski. He had been through Antenna uh, with Strom. And then he just was didn't have a gig. So uh, him and I and Chuck got together and we banged out as a three piece. And then Kenny joined. And then that's when they became at the drive, uh, stranded at the drive-in. And so I would come down from Chicago for gigs with them. I, w- I would build decks with my dad in Indy to make money because I didn't have any money. And uh, so I'd build a deck in a weekend and make 300 bucks. And then I'd go down to Bloomington and party my ass off with Chuck and, and stranded at the drive-in. And I had Juno you know, 60. And so when, when they would play at uh, second story, a lot of times I would bring my Juno and be like the noisemaker for them. Um, and uh, kept going down. I would record, I recorded at Farm Fresh with uh, Jake. Uh, one time did some solo stuff there. Um, so I, I stayed in, I stayed in with Bloomington all the way through like 2000. In 98, I went back to finish school. Yeah. So I was there that whole summer of 98 and I was living with the Japanese elephants and, uh, had a little band called The New Bugs, uh, but it wasn't really much of anything. But it, that was, that summer in 98, actually, that I was in Bloomington, I saw a lot of shows and, and was really, again, like kind of immersed back into the scene, um, but because uh, uh, of my connection with Japanese elephants. Uh, so, you know, my my connection to Bloomington all the way through the 90s, basically, yeah. I, was, I was connected to it.
0: Let's fast forward a little bit and talk about any, um musical projects or musical adventures that you've been on
1: uh, post-Bloomington? Well, I mean, of the things that I did that I'm the most proud of, just in terms of like getting up there, um, I remember in Bloomington, I saw Red Red Meat one time and they just blew my mind. They were so good. And when I got to Chicago, I had occasion to join with Tim Rutile in a post-Red Red Meat project that was sort of like a Pre-Caliphone, it was sort of like I. I, I mean, I just love Red Red Meat and uh and and so uh, playing with Tim Rutili was super cool. Um, we did a show at the Metro in Chicago where uh, uh, Quasi and Elliott Smith opened for us, which is pretty rad. Um, and then, uh, and then in the in the 2000s, I joined up with Vulgar Boatman as their bass player. They were in sort of this in between period. Uh, Jake had moved to England, and he was playing with them, and then and then uh, took a pause for a while, and so I stepped into to the bass role with the Vulgar Boatman, which was a dream come true. I did maybe a dozen shows with them, um, and uh, it was just the like playing in that band was just so easy. Like I knew all the songs. I'd seen the Boatmen sixty times. You know, I knew all of Matt's leads. I knew all of Dale's you know quirky things and and uh uh you know there's there it was definitely uh the boatmen were not at their peak of popularity uh we had some but we had a lot of really really fun the people who come to a boatman show see a radio radio or something were just like just so into it so into it um and uh and i and i really love those guys too so uh that Dale was one of my favorite songwriters. Tim Rutilia is one of my favorite songwriters. And I have really just been about writing songs ever since. You know, my my thing, here I am, I'm 52. I've written like 200 songs in my life. And it feels really, really good.
0: Yeah. Some yeah. of
1: them were, some of, some of them in Bloomington, we had a group of people that were doing state songs, me and Kenny and uh, Josh Bennett. Uh, were, we're all writing state songs and Chuck, And uh, we tried to fill up all 50 states, of course, we we couldn't. But the idea was like all of us were like really into writing. Kenny was really into writing, but hadn't done a lot of it. But you're just writing shitty stuff, you know, just getting it out, just getting it out. Uh, So so that was that was really fun.
0: Where can people find anything that you've
1: written or recorded? Oh, well, Musical Family Tree was largely built on sardina. and so a lot of my st- a lot of my back catalog is there and a lot of the sardina catalog and the Jared's catalog um, i just really uh, when uh, it i mean the story of of my catalog being online in 98 as the as sardina had kind of been wiped out and everybody in the music industry was trying to figure out what's going on I was in chicago and i saw uh, mp3 technology demoed at chicago recording company and it was me and ken it was the producer and uh chris Shepard was the engineer and we were there and they demonstrated how to take a cd and rip mp3s and post them on a server and then download them and then all of us were like well that's the end of the music industry you don't need to tour you don't need a label you don't need to manufacture it you know there's like like and i was excited by that and so uh with interest in Sardina, but no like platform for Sardina, I started uh, operating as Admiral Sound and I started posting Sardina MP3s on Admiral Sound. And that was the only way you could get them. Mm. Uh, And then in time, uh, Amazon became a a resource for people to be able to buy those CDs. But you know, there was just, you just couldn't find that stuff anywhere, like pretty quickly. Um, and, And then, and then the Musical Family Tree was kind of based on the idea that with all and also based on Eric's um, uh, Bloomington timeline of bands, which is a whole show probably for you if you if, if you ever wanted to get into that. But the, the timeline of bands really indicated how many how much music was a, a shared interest and that there was a community of people that had all played in bands together. They were all associated with each other. And so we started with Sardina and Long Paul's projects and my projects. And then we just began building out from there through the whole like Indianapolis music scene and and the Bloomington scene. And uh, to get a lot of the early coverage that Musical Family Tree had, was largely built on Sardina's connections. And I was excited. and I still love Musical Family Tree. I don't have anything bad to say about it, but as an early person, uh, watching it become something else is a little bittersweet, you know? i I felt like i felt felt, uh, uh, like i was in the dna of it and i don't feel like i'm in the dna of it anymore but all my archive is still there um i've begun to diversify my archive a little bit i've got the the sardina presence is on spotify i've got my first solo album is on spotify um the sardina uh single called tractor beam which we recorded the lodge with uh paul maher is on is on spotify and all the streaming platforms but, uh, but if you want the broadest, broadest archive of the Jarens and Sardina and PJ Christie and Marty Green, Michelle and Mom Paul's projects, they're all on musical family tree. Um, yeah, the, we did, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot out there. There's a lot out there. I think for me, there's a, I did a release called Being Peter Christie, which is like seven songs. And then I did a, a digital release called Everybody Wants to Be PJ Christie, which is like 50 songs, <laughs> right? On. Like the whole everything, and there's there's cringy stuff on there, but but you know a lot of it, I mean, like there was a song on there that was recorded at um, Dan Fierce had bought a church and was remodeling into apartments there on Cottage Grove, and I spent a summer working for Dan on that, and uh, I recorded that in the in the uh, the sanctuary of the church. Um, there's about probably ten songs on there from that from that period, and I hear it and I just it, it just brings back so many good memories, and I just keep it out there. Mostly, from, I mean, an archive is a personal, you yeah. know, a personal expression, and and uh, but with Sardina, there was a real demand for it. You know, p- people, so many people over the years had said they wanted to be available, and I would be like, we well, can get it on Amazon for like a penny for a while. It would cost more to ship it than to buy it. And they're like, no, we don't want the CD. I was like, well, th- then the MP3s are there at Musical Family Tree. Well, no, I don't want to download it to my computer. I was like, what, what sardine are you looking for? And then what they want is the vinyl. Yeah. They want the full vinyl right. experience, which they're not going to get. I'm not going to do it. Right. I would also love the full vinyl experience, but I do not have the five grand that it would take to pull it off. Right. Because yeah. wouldn't, we wouldn't want to half-ass it, you know, we'd want it to be, we, we've got the original artwork, like, it could be done. It's not It's not impossible to do. But, you know, I, I, I put it on Spotify to be like, okay, we've got 35 monthly listeners. Now, does anybody feel like putting in $5,000? Because the data would say if they're they thought they could break even. I just don't, I mean, we sold 3,000 CDs. I'm just gonna brag on Sardina for a minute. We sold three thousand Sardina CDs. Total failure for the record company. Amazing success for me and my dreams growing up playing punk rock at a golf course with a bunch of freaks. Right? Like I feel uh, tremendously validated by the success that that Sardina had. But I I do not have an irrational imagination about what the finances of putting out a full final (laughs) release would be. Fucking this was what Lon Paul was supposed to be doing. Right. You know? Yeah. That's, I, and and that's a personal statement. And I don't mean to get I do get emotional when I, I think about Lon Paul and like what's out there for Sardina to to do. And he's the one. He's the one who should be doing this, not me. Yeah. Uh you know, uh, I have my own songs. Oh, man, mm-hmm. And you know, and I have my own my own memories and my own experiences, but yeah. Uh, it's it's tough loss. It's tough to lose a guy like like him.
0: Yeah, uh, his was a, a very tragic loss. Very very tragic. Yeah. Loss.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I think that though yeah, we
1: lost a lot of good people. Evan Evan Farrell too, by the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I they're... think of the two of them together as like you know two two people that really like carved a knife through me to music to not be there
0: anymore you know truly and it's yeah. it to imagine what could have happened or could have mm-hmm. um, I try not to uh, engage in kind of
1: that. yeah I know it's it's not it's a fool's game but but talking to you has made me a little nostalgic I think
0: yeah well I mean and that's what this is about is it, this is a nostalgia project um, this is an yeah. attempt to keep to keep the memories and to keep the the music from that very special era of Bloomington alive. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's really important to capture these and catalog these and, and talk yeah. about them. Through. And uh, I'll
1: tell you, listening to your stories, um, I get it. this is not a musical story, but Deke uh, Hager, mm-hmm. uh, who I haven't been to since he was my neighbor when I lived there on, uh, uh, Lincoln, yeah. But one night we were out there just raising all kinds of hell in the front yard. Me and my me and my roommates. <laughs> <laughs> and he up his window. He yelled, "Hey jackass, give it a rest!"
0: Wait, what did he say?
1: Hey, hey jackass, give it a rest. <laughs> and that has been my tagline every time somebody gives <laughs> me.
0: I love it. I love it. Yeah, uh, he yeah. still he still
1: performs with Brad Wilhelm. Uh, yeah, I got caught up on some of his uh, recent recent recordings out there. It sounds really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love all these guys are still doing it. Kevin Kevin's doing it. His boy is doing it. Yeah. James comes out there, you know, do, making some of the best work ever in April 2. You got Bill Cameron, you know, in San Francisco. Yeah. I'm no so different, you know. I'm just doing it in Austin. I got, I have a, a current band. I have a package of current songs. I've been, you know, I'm, I've still been active in recording, and and uh, you know, I, uh, it's just so it's so rewarding to hear the stories of people in their 50s that still kind of care about this great analog era and want to put the energy into you know keeping the keeping the flame alive.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing musical legacy and um i'm really grateful that i get the opportunity to talk to all of you and uh, capture mm-hmm. these stories it's it's yeah it's been fantastic and we have
1: to we have to capture the story then about you and the you and the jazz bass for your listeners to make sure that it, that, that people know about it so first you tell the story of your your side of the, of the bass
0: well so i had a fender jazz bass that i bought in high school and uh Probably paid $150 for it at uh, Indiana Music Company. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was an American-made jazz bass and I sold it for beer money in like 1992. And um, it ended up, I think Jake Smith ended up owning it. Um, mm-hmm. He bought it from Roadworthy. It is It is my biggest musical financial regret ever that I let that thing uh-huh.
1: through my hands. And you, mm-hmm. you played it. Um, well, so was that the same bass you played with Monkey Fish? Yeah, yeah. So the first time I played it was when I did Love and Touch and Squeeze-In uh-huh. when we played with Monkey Fish because you were supposed to play bass on it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, And I don't, I don't remember what happened, but I know I really wanted to do it and I know you really wanted to do it. And I remember you and I talking about, we really wanted to do it, right? Yeah. I think yeah. that happened. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. so so that show was monkey fish and the blacklisted and Steve kowalski yep. and at the end of the night everybody came up on stage all the bands and we did journeys love and touch and Squeezing," live yep. on stage at the Ritz slash Arlington theater there in Indianapolis yeah. so that was the first time I played that your bass yeah and uh and then after I when I was going back up, to record at Sonic Iguana with Sardina, I had two basses. I had a Rickenbacker bass, and I had a Fender Precision Light bass with active pickups. So these were my two basses. And Jim Kuchikowski was like, no, you're gonna play this one. And what and the bass that he gave me to play was what I, I knew to be Jake Smith's bass. Yeah. So Jake somehow ended up with your bass from Roadworthy. Yeah. And then as the producer, just gave it to me and said, this is the one that you're going to play in the studio with us. I was just like, okay, great. And it just has, it just had some real mojo to it. Yeah. And uh, and Jake still plays it, you know? Yeah. Uh, over the, over, went through my connection with the Boatmen, I play a jazz bass now because of course they're the best basses <laughs>
2: available.
1: But yeah. my, my bass is a jazz bass and Jake, are my jazz bass a few times to play with the Boatman. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, honestly, that bass was a big shape of the sound that got us all the attention that, you know, I'm I'm certain if I would have used the Rickenbacker, most people wouldn't have cared, but it needed to have that, you know, I mean, Jim was right. He's, Jim's got ears, there's no doubt about it.
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, I will always regret letting that bass slide through my hands, but I think it's, that bass
1: itself has, uh, done some really cool stuff and uh it wouldn't i think jake done. smith has put a lot of legacy on it too i mean what jake jake has been playing that bass with the bowman for 25 years or something like that so you know it's it's getting it's it's on stages all the time i love it i love it it's, got, it's a good it's a good instrument you should regret it i hope that uh one day you replace it with something equally as meaningful
0: i hope so too um <laughs> Hey, PJ, I'm running out of time, but it has been amazing to talk to you and So good to talk to you, Mike. I really appreciate this, but uh, thank you so much for being here and sharing your stories. Yeah, thanks for doing this, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you. We'll talk soon, okay? that was my conversation with PJ Christie. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Down in Bloomington. If you have enjoyed it, I hope you tell your friends to listen to it. You can find Down in Bloomington on Spotify. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. And you can find it anywhere where you download and listen to your favorite podcasts. Again, thank you very much for listening. And I will see you again next time. Some sort of clever tagline goes here, but I don't have one yet.